Thank you for coming. My name is Michael Ryan. I'm a student in the Dublin School for more years than I care to remember. So our subject tonight is philosophy and the power of speech, and we'll be looking at it under three main headings. The first heading is we will look at some high-profile examples to establish beyond doubt the real power of this element, how just how powerful it is. Then we will look, under the second element, we will look at our exposure to this powerful element. Um, much of that is haphazard. And particularly, how this power of speech affects us as it operates silently in our heads, uh, determining how we act. And then, in the final section, we will try to understand the source of its power, which invariably and inevitably takes us into the highest reaches of philosophy and religion. And in understanding the source of its power, how it may be used for good as well as for ill. So that's our journey tonight. And if you're happy with that, off we go. As far back as the 10th century BC, a spiritual exercise developed in India. It was called the Brahmodia Competition. And its aim was to find a formula that defined the ultimate reality. The challenge was to define the indefinable, the inmost essence of all things, the force that pulls all the parts of the universe together. And how they did it was that first the priests would go into the jungle to make a retreat. They fasted and practiced breathing exercises so that they would be in a different level of consciousness because you cannot talk about God, Brahman, Nirvana, or Tao the same way as you might discuss a business proposition. You have to put yourself in a receptive frame of mind that is somewhat similar to the way you would listen to music or poetry. After the retreat, the priests then returned to begin the competition. The challenger issued his description of the Brahman, using all his learning and erudition, and then his opponents had to respond, taking the description a step further. And the winner, the winner was the priest who reduced everybody to silence. And in that silence, the Brahman was present. Curiously, not present in the brilliant expositions, the brilliant verbal expositions, but in the stunning realization of the limitations of speech. If you move on 500 years until Socrates appears on the scene and the dialogues recorded by Plato, you find another version of this Brachmodia competition. Here the winner is not Socrates producing the winning speech, but rather pursuing the argument to the very limits of speech until even he, a judge the wisest of men, could take speech no further. The argument was reduced to silence, and this gave rise to his surprising claim, perhaps, that he knew nothing. Move on again, 2,500 years this time, to our scientifically enlightened age. How are we doing? Curiously, the very same questions are still around. 
controversy still rages, with claim and counterclaim, either written or spoken, but always in speech, either invoking the word of God or counterclaims of the scientists and the militant atheists. So this evening, we're going to take a look at speech in our search for meaning. This is the medium that has always been used, and we're going to use it again this evening. How much influence does it have over us? What is its role in the eternal quest? How far can it take us? This man, Barack Obama, is a living example of the amazing power of speech. This is the man who literally talked himself into the highest office in America, in the process becoming no less than the notional leader of the Western world. As we all know, he did this from a most improbable start, or even as many predicted at the outset, had him set himself an impossible task. He was the wrong color. He had the wrong name. Even the wrong loudmouth pastor. Whatever about being called Barack Obama, imagine standing for president in post 9 11 America when your father is a Muslim and your middle name is Hussein. It was whispered that he was not even born in the United States and that he had no right to stand for election in the first place. The Fox National News Channel, no friend of the Democrats, at the best of times, went over the top and they referred to him as a racist who hated white people and white culture. Now, politically, he was subject to ferocious attacks from opponents, highlighting the fact that he was unknown and totally inexperienced in the crucial area of foreign policy. He was no more than a crowd-pleasing celebrity with only any gravitas to lead. As if that was not enough, he had to compete with the Clintons. Competing with the Clintons, he was up against the best of the best. Hillary, who was everyone's favourite and from his own party, meant that even his core base was divided and loaded against him. In summary, from the Sunday Independent, Joseph O'Connor told us he cannot remember a campaign of such focus and sustained hate as that stirred by Barack Obama's election. Against all these odds, he had one trump card. Speech. He was an extraordinary, inspirational speaker. And as this iconic picture shows, he hit the road hard and carried his message of change the length and breadth of America. And of course, in the end, he transcended everything that was thrown at him, and he triumphed. So what was it about speech that overcame such odds and carried all before him? Have a look at this. The only reason I'm standing here today is because somebody somewhere stood up when it was risky stood up when it was hard stood up when it wasn't popular and because that somebody stood up a few more stood up and then a few thousand stood up and then a few million stood up and standing up with courage and clear purpose they somehow managed to change the world as president i will end this war in iraq we will have our troops home within 16 months I'll close Guantanamo. I will restore habeas corpus. I will finish the fight against Al-Qaeda. This party, the party of Jefferson and Jackson, of Roosevelt and Kennedy, has always made the biggest difference in 
the lives of the American people when we led, not by polls, but by principles. Not by calculation, but by conviction. When we summoned the entire nation to a common purpose, a higher purpose. And I run for the presidency of the United States because that's the party America needs us to be right now. party that doesn't just offer change as a slogan, but real, meaningful change. And I'll lead the world to combat the common threats of the 21st century, nuclear weapons and terrorism, climate change and poverty, genocide and disease. And I will send once more a message to those yearning faces beyond our shores that says, you matter to us. Your future is our future. I'm running in this race because of what Dr. King called the fierce urgency of now. Because I believe there's such a thing as being too late. And our moment is now. America, Democrats, our moment is now. Now, I'd like you to look at another very short clip now, and then I'd just like to see if you can spot what it was about his speech that was so compelling. People of the world, look at Berlin. People of the world, look at Berlin. Look at Berlin where Germans and Americans learn to work together and trust each other less than three years after facing each other on the field of battle. Look at Berlin, where the determination of a people met the generosity of the Marshall Plan and created a German miracle, where a, where a victory over tyranny gave rise to NATO, the greatest alliance ever formed to defend our common security. Look at Berlin, where the bullet holes in the buildings and the somber stones and pillars near the Brandenburg Gate insist that we never forget our common humanity. People of the world, look at Berlin, where a wall came down, a continent came together, and history proved that there is no challenge too great for a world that stands as one. No challenge too great for a world that stands as one. What is the quality of the speech that carried him against all the odds? Well, see if you'd agree with this. His speeches were unifying and inclusive lacking any divisive criticism. He appealed to the best in all who heard him and the noblest ideals. He never claimed that what he was asking would be easy. Instead, he asked for sacrifice in pursuit of the ideal. And from self, he spoke only of service to worthwhile causes. His agenda always carried the ring of truth. He spoke of peace, not power, diplomacy, not demagoguery. Just the promise of his speeches before he actually did anything was enough for him to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And he was voted by the influential British journal The New Statesman as one of the ten people who could change the world. So is it just as simple as that? Speech, which is aimed at the highest ideals, which is detached and truthful, is virtually unstoppable and can even change the world. Anyway, here's a speech from another leader, just as powerful, but has a different sound. 
This is appealing to something different in us. See if you can spot the difference. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Where Obama was from the head, Martin Luther King from the heart, with the greater devotional tone. But here again, we have the unstoppable power of speech bringing about what many believed was impossible, an emancipating revolution in America. Indeed, such was the threatening power of his selfless oratory that he paid the ultimate penalty. The day after this prophetic speech, he was shot dead. Interestingly, in killing the man, they immortalized his speech, which speech ignited rather than buried his cause and, of course, continues to inspire to this day. There's another type of speech. We've had speech from the head, speech from the heart, and this is a very powerful speech as well. This time it's speech from the gut. You may find this a little disturbing, but nonetheless, just have a look at it and get a sense of its mesmerizing power. So this is speech coming from the gut. It's aimed at generating action, appealing for action, and it appeals to the lower orders in us. It is just as powerful as the other forms of speech and can sweep all before it. And as we know, this can cause complete havoc in the world. So here we have three types of speech, speech which can overcome impossible odds, speech which can overcome bias and prejudice, and speech which can cause havoc. So whether it is appealing to our heads, our hearts, or our guts, determining how we think, feel, and act, speech has the power to move us 
and as we have seen, critically to move us for good or ill. So when it comes to how we think, feel, or act, we need to be awake, awake to the power of speech, particularly where it's coming from and where it's leading to. Is it based on universal principles or partisan ideas? Is it uniting or dividing? Is it based on some insatiable self-serving ego, or is it in service of all? Is it based on knowledge, or is it based on ignorance? One way or another, there should be no doubt about the amazing power of speech and its influence over us. Coping with the power of speech is not a new problem. Over 2,000 years ago, the Greeks, aware of the power of speech, debated the different types of speech and categorized them under two main headings, rhetoric and dialectic. Rhetoric is that speech which is based on persuasion. It's persuasion about anything, and it can be for good or ill. Rhetoric is concerned with the physical world, the world of becoming. That is the world that we experience through the senses, the everyday world that we live in. Dialectic is concerned with the non-physical world, the world of being, the metaphysical world, and it is beyond the scope of the senses, which can only be accessed through reason. We need to be clear about these two different types of speech, as there are very different rules for dealing with the physical and the metaphysical worlds. Working in the physical world, the purpose of rhetoric is to persuade. Persuasion, however, is to whatever suits our purpose, or if you like, to whatever will sell. So rhetoric can be used for good or ill. Because it's dealing with the ever-changing phenomenal world, rhetoric, critically, can never offer certainty. It's a fundamental point. Even if it is used to conquer the world, right opinion is the furthest it can get to. And it can't really give us the absolute truth. Here's an example of rhetoric which did conquer the world. And you can see again an example of its, of its power. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from Louisville, Kentucky, wearing black tie, Mr. Cassius Marcellus Clay. For his first reading, Mr. Clay will honor us with a recitation of his classic poem, I Am the Greatest. (laughs) I Am the Greatest by Cassius Clay. This is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. (laughs) He talks a great deal and brags indeedy of a muscular punch that's incredibly speedy. 
The fistic world was dull and weary. With a champ like Liston, things had to be dreary. <laughs> then someone with color, someone with dash, brought fight fans a running with cash. <laughs> this brash young boxer is something to see, and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. This kid fights great, he's got speed and endurance. But if you sign to fight him, increase your insurance. <laughs> this kid's got a left. This kid's got a right. If he hits you once, you're asleep for the night. <laughs> and as you lie on the floor while the ref counts ten, you pray that you won't have to fight me again. <laughs> for I am the man this poem is about. The next champ of the world, there isn't a doubt. This I predict, and I know the score. I'll be champ of the world in 64. When I say three, they go in the third. And indeed he was. Muhammad Ali used humorous rhetorical speech as much as his fists to fill boxing arenas around the world, to overcome his own fears, to psych out his opponents and become a four-time world champion and a world celebrity. A dazzling example of the influence and power of rhetoric, but nonetheless about things that come to pass. The purpose of dialectic is to discover the truth. In contrast to rhetoric, which deals with the ever-changing, dialectic deals with the unchanging world. That which does not change being the mark of truth. It works by appealing to universal reason to take us to that which under all circumstances remains the same. And if it's successful, the prize is certainty and real peace of mind. So let's have a look at a simple analogy as to how this works in practice. This is a classic example here. Oh, just incidentally, just to finish the slide there, with certainty, it's restful as distinct from no certainty, which is restless. So that's the prize. Peace and bliss comes with certainty, not necessarily with right opinion. It's just interesting to look at this for a moment, how it works in the mind. The lower mind is the mind of the senses, and that is turned out towards the physical world to the world of appearances. The higher mind, regarded by the Greeks, incidentally, as the soul, is pointed back towards the metaphysical or the ultimate source, and it works in silence through reason. And under reason, you get dialectic seeking the truth and bringing us to the same, whereas with the physical world, you're dealing with rhetoric, which takes us to right opinion, which can be good or bad. And the difference there is that they come from different aspects of the mind, and that's very important to understand that. So you cannot get to the truth, or you cannot get to the same using rhetoric or using the lower mind, the mind of the senses. Here's an example now of rhetoric. Here are the pots, all the different pots, okay? These beautiful pots are all different, all classic design. They all look beautiful on your patio. We give enjoyment every time you look at them and are on special offer today, so you save money as well. There's a pot here for every occasion and for every patio. What is that I've just given you? Rhetoric. Okay. And the promise is 
that they will adorn your patio and bring you enjoyment. That would be the effect. So this is rhetoric, and it would lead to many different opinions about which is the nicest pot or which one you should have and so on. So the question is, what do you think, how would dialectic work to take us to the same with regard to those pots? So a typical dialectical question would be, rhetoric is concerned with what aspect of the pots? The appearance, the shape, and the form, okay? And they're all different, and have a different effect. Dialectical question, typical, would be, what is the substance of these pots? Okay? The substance of the pots, what are they really? The substance of the pots is they're all made of clay. As clay, they're all the same. So dialectic takes you to the same. Rhetoric will take you to different. Okay? Just a simple example of that. The pot experiment illustrates a mistake which is easily made when we consider our wonderful creation. We think the ever-changing appearance of everything is real and offers the prospect of lasting satisfaction and miss altogether the unchanging substance which is the true underlying reality. The law of one and many. And this gives us an upside-down view of the world and all of the disappointment and misery that goes with that. So just to summarize for us where we are at the moment, along with the undoubted power of speech, we have this brief insight into two types of speech, one using persuasion and the other reason, one dealing with the physical world and the other with the metaphysical world, one offering at best right opinion and the other certainty, one eternally restless and the other eternally restful. So that's the comparison of the two types. Now the question for us at this point is this. What kind of exposure do we have to this power which determines how we think, feel, and act? Let's take a look for a moment at what kind of speech we are subject to. What's this, for example? Essentially, they're posters but fundamentally, it's speech. In this case, telling us how and why we should vote. This is the library in Trinity College. Five million books packed to the brim with silent speech. Much of that appearing subsequently in classrooms, where again, speech is used to instruct and inform us. This is another interesting one, musical speech. Just have a look at what the Greeks thought about the speech. Plato said, in order to take the spiritual temperature of an individual or society, mark the music. Socrates says, musical training is more potent instrument than any other, making the soul of him who is rightly educated graceful and of him who is ill-educated ungraceful. And Aristotle, most serious of all, any musical innovation is full of danger to the whole state and ought to be prohibited. When modes of music change, the fundamental laws of the state always change with them. More speech here. Magazines telling us what to wear, what weight we should be, what shape we should be, uh, how we should behave in our houses, what we should cook, and so on and so forth. Every aspect of our life. Radio, 24 hours a day radio, and television. All speech coming at us hard and fast. Texting, (laughs) 
the new phenomenon in speech. Newspapers and advertising. Now, just in case anybody has any doubts about the power of speech, that particular advertisement sells 1.5 billion servings of Coca-Cola every day. Every day. And that leads to this conclusion. As you might expect, some aspects of this random barrage of rhetoric can take a terrible toll on us, creating false values and standards. While we are usually aware of what comes out of our mouths as speech, we are not always aware of the values and standards which shape our lives, resulting in the silent speech in our heads. Here we can become slaves to the sentences which divide up our world and rule our lives. I hate that. I love that. I'm afraid of that. I'm unable to do that. I should look like that. Under the tyranny of such silent speech, we sentence ourselves many times for life, more thoroughly than any convicted criminal. This silent speech in the head also gives rise to doubt, fear, jealousy, worry, and all the damage that goes with that. Two people living in the same house often don't live in the same world, and for this reason, they speak different languages. We even fall in love differently. Men through the eyes, and the ladies through the ears. We've all got our own language, and with this language, we create our own world. And we live in our own world, and we don't see much of any other world except when we are hit very hard by some crisis or other. It may be of some consolation to know that this happens, whether you see yourself as being of no great consequence, or even if you are rich and famous and beautiful. This is the lovely George Clooney, and this is what appeared in The Independent. You see it there? I've been in relationships where I felt terribly alone. Just because you're with someone, it doesn't mean you're happy. Another concern about silent speech in the head is that if it's not spoken out and relieved, it can turn into a poisonous killer, often threatening the brightest and the best. And here's from the Irish Times just last year, 43% rise in the rate of suicides. This caused so much concern that in the universities there is a movement called Please Talk, where students, particularly male students, are urged to talk out their demons to find life-saving relief. Now, we're still with silent speech in the head. I just want you to consider this for a moment. It's not quite as dangerous, but still very troublesome. And it is the usurping power of speech in the head which creates those phobias which can rule our lives. Ideas picked up in any random, haphazard ways, but with the power to cause such misery. These come in the form of speech sentences like, I'm afraid of flying, I hate spiders, and they rule us with no possibility of escape until the sentence or the speech in the head is somehow changed. And we will have to look at how we're going to do that. Added to the power of speech and the understanding that it can influence for good or ill, we have to deal with the fact that we are surrounded by it and at the mercy of its influence, even silently in our heads. So what can be done about all of this? Well, sometimes through grace, sometimes just through frustration, we're stopped in our tracks. We have a feeling there must be a better way, some way to make sense of it all, some way to go free 
of the relentless speech in our heads and its consequences. When this happens, we start to look around to ask questions, and then the search for truth is on. This search often leads to one or other of the religious or philosophical traditions. If the search is sincere, it can lead to the astonishing discovery that the very creation itself comes about through speech. That speech is the first manifestation of consciousness. That the creation is in fact spoken into existence. And that our speech, spoken or silent, which creates the world in which we live, is no more than a reflection of how the universal creation comes about. And it's all summed up in a few lines of scripture. In the beginning was the word. Then the two aspects of speech, the word was with God and the word was God. And then this intriguing statement, the same was in the beginning with God, and a little further on, lest there be any doubt that speech is in fact the essence of man, the word was made flesh. All that is in our Christian Western scripture and gives an insight into the source and power of speech. When you look at the Eastern philosophic tradition, you find the same conclusion that this creation arises in, is sustained by, and dissolves in sound. But here they go much further. In fact, we're told what the sound actually is. This primordial sound, represented by this beautiful symbol, made up of three sounds. These sounds are represented by the first letter in the natural alphabet, which is A, and the last letter in the natural alphabet, which is Ma, and joined together and sustained by the sustaining power of the middle letter, which is U. And they come together to form this mysterious trinity, which comes out as the sound Om. Now, would you like to hear it? Want to hear it again? I thought what we might do now is because we're at the core here, we might do a little experiment together. Are you on for this? This experiment takes us from the theoretical to the practical. You'll be able to check this out at our own direct experience. Now, it involves singing. Are you still on for it? <laughs> okay. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to try and understand something that is really difficult to understand. And we're going to try and do that in our own direct experience. Okay? So here we go. I'm going to give you ah as best I can, and you're going to give it back to me, right? Ah, ah, good. Now, this time... I give you the R, uh, I want you, when I indicate, to change it to ooh, right? Ah, uh, Okay, good. Now, question is, how did you get from ah uh, to ooh? What did you do? I can hear lots of sounds, but I... Uh, we'll try it again. Ah, uh, ooh. Okay. How did you get from ah uh, to ooh? 
You change the shape of your mouth. Is that what you did down the back? Change the shape of your mouth. What happened to the ah when you changed to ooh? Okay, just one more time. Ah. Okay, what happened to the ah when you went to ooh? It changed. It disappeared. Okay, disappeared. You were left with ooh. Okay. But how did you get the ooh? You changed your lips. Okay. So what happened to the ah then? I know this is a bit challenging, but just stay for a moment. The ah was modified in the mouth, but changed your mouth and came out as ooh. And now you had a new sound, ooh. But where was the ah? It was still there, right? Okay, now we're going to just do the three sounds this time. This is a profound insight you're about to, uh, you're at the brink of a great discovery here. So here we go. Ah, first. Ah, ooh. Now just close your lips. Okay. Now this primordial sound that we're talking about there requires us to bring the ah and the ooh together. And it gives you an O. Oh. So let's just try that. Ah, first. Ah. Now, oh, close your lips. Now, what have we got now? We have the R sound modified in the mouth to give us O, and the lips closed to give us ma. So we have three new sounds, but really, what are they? They're really all ah. There's one sound modified in the mouth which comes out in three different sounds. There's always great fuss of trying to understand three divine persons in one God or three aspects of consciousness. But that illustration there indicates how it might be that you could have three aspects of one. The one disappears. The new sounds take on a kind of reality. You hear the new sounds. You think they're the real ones and miss the unchanging, underlying, substantial ah. Okay? Now, did we just experience this directly ourselves? Or was it just me? You made all the sounds. Are you satisfied with that? Okay. The first sound the baby makes is ah. And when the baby says mama, it's completed the natural alphabet. So ah and ma, and then oo is the one in the, in, in the middle that just brings that sound together. And they have other consequences as well. When Sanskrit is written, it's written with a continuous line. This Sanskrita is written with a continuous line for the ah, and all the letters drop down from that continuous line. So it's in the writing and it's in the sound they acknowledge the ultimate source, the unifying source of everything. The manifestations are all different. They all come from ah, both in writing and in sound. So the Sanskrit alphabet then systematically shows how the primordial sound is continually modified in the mouth to produce all the sounds needed for the glory of language in whatever diverse form it emerges. So in the end, it's all ah, one sound modified. Now, 
being the source of everything, we begin to see where speech gets its incredible power. The power to bind us, the power to create the private worlds in which we live, but critically also the power needed to release us and to set us free. Wisdom is one of those powers, and it cannot be shown except through speech. Unless one speaks and speaks coherently, one's wisdom will remain unknown. A constant encouragement from the wise is the study of the scriptures. And in the West, we're all familiar with the Ten Commandments, urging us to tell the truth, not to bear false witness against our neighbor. In the East, the austerities of speech are similar. And here they are, very quickly for you. Tell the truth. No false witness. Do not give offense. Speech should be pleasant and beneficial. So tell the truth, no lies, gossip, idle talk and rumor out, criticism, anger and complaining, all out under the austerities of speech. There's one last clip for you here. It's an extract from Socrates speaking at his trial where he was on trial for his life. And I'd like you just to listen to this against the background of our conversation. This is a man who is on trial of his life and subsequently is convicted and is killed. So it's a very real situation. Just see what you make of this. Athenians, I honor and love you, but I shall obey God rather than you. And while I have life and strength, I shall never cease from the practice and teaching of philosophy, exhorting anyone whom I meet and saying to him after my manner, You, my friend, a citizen of the great and mighty and wise city of Athens, are you not ashamed of heaping up the greatest amount of money and honor and reputation and caring so little about wisdom and truth and the greatest improvement of the soul which you never regard or heed at all? And if the person with whom I am arguing says, Yes, but I do care, then I do not leave him or let him go at once, but I proceed to interrogate and examine and cross-examine him. And if I think that he has no virtue in him, but only says that he has, I reproach him with undervaluing the greater and overvaluing the less. And I shall repeat the same words to everyone whom I meet, young and old, citizen and alien, but especially to the citizens, inasmuch as they are my brethren. For know that this is the command of God, and I believe that no greater good has ever happened in the state than my service to the God. For I do nothing but go about persuading you all, old and young alike, not to take thought for your persons or your properties, but first and chiefly to care about the greatest improvement of the soul. I tell you that virtue is not given by money, but that from virtue comes money, and every other good of man, public as well as private. This is my teaching, and if this is the doctrine which corrupts the youth, I am a mischievous person. But if anyone says that this is not my teaching, he is speaking an untruth. Wherefore, O Athenians, I say to you, do as Anitas bids, or not as Anitas bids, and either acquit me or not. But whichever you do, 
Understand that I shall never alter my ways, not even if I have to die many times. So there's no lack of certainty there. One of the really exciting things about the beginning, and the beginning was the word, is that you are as close as it's possible to be to the source. To avail the source, reason would tell us that we have to go beyond speech. So how would we do that? It may not be as easy for us because speech is often regarded as representing all of our brilliance, trusted as the way we know and understand and deal with everything in the world. And to surrender that would leave us ill-equipped to know and understand anything. So is it possible to go beyond speech? How could it be done? What would it be like? Would we just simply be nothing, just disappear? Or is it possible in the silence beyond we would find the unchanging ground of our being, the very nature of which reason would tell us must be unchanging, and offer peace and bliss? This would be a sure, safe haven from all the influences of speech and with every recourse weak in their grip, epitomized by Hamlet, who is tormented almost to madness by speech when he tells us that the rest is silence. Scripture tells us, Be still and know that I am God. The wisdom of the Himalaya tells us, The only recourse for the growth of consciousness is to go backstage, or in other words, to meditate. And here's an interesting consideration for you. In downtown Grafton Street, there is an entrance to Clarendon Street Church. And on a brick embedded in the wall at the entrance to the church is that inscription, Silence is the worship due to God's holiness. So I thought the best way we could end this consideration is to see if we could go beyond speech and see what that's like and see what it shows us. Would you be on for that? Okay. Well, here's what we're going to do then. This is an exercise, not in thinking, it's an exercise in being, an exercise in attention. So I'm just going to give you some simple instructions. Let's follow them and let's see where that takes us. If you want to close your eyes, if you're happy enough to do that, please do that as well. So let's start, as ever, with speech, with these instructions. So just be aware of your feet on the ground and the weight of the body on the chair. Know where you are now. And be aware of the touch of clothes on the skin and the play of air in the face and hands. Now use taste and give your attention to tasting. And smell, smelling. And now turn your attention to hearing. Let the hearing carry your attention out of the head to all the sounds in the street outside and the city at large. Keep on refining the hearing and it will take your attention right out to the furthest and gentlest sound. 
And now allow the hearing merge with the silence out of which all these sounds arise and into which they return. Here you have to abandon thinking. Thinking cannot take you there. And just enjoy being. And it is in this silence that we find the unity and the same and the peace and bliss that takes us very often in search of it all over the world, looking everywhere for it except in this present moment beyond speech, beyond thinking. Oh, very good. Well, now, the plan is we're going to have a cup of tea, and then, if you're happy to come back, we might just take some questions. Will that be all right? Very good. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Okay, well, the attempt, ladies and gentlemen, this evening was to illustrate that in the search for meaning, speech is the critical, fundamental, essential medium, whether it comes through language or through writing or through music or even silently in our heads. And we saw the power of it through the politicians and the political leaders there. We saw the power of it operating silently in our heads when it determines how we live our lives. And the idea was to try and explain that its power is derived from the essential nature of speech, even in the nature of the creation, where this creation is spoken into existence. And when it's spoken into existence, at the beginning, then the idea is that if you can go beyond the beginning, you get to the source. And the source, just like the priests in 10th century BC, you find silence rather than words. And in that silence, you find what Bono hasn't been able to find, uh, <laughs> which is what we're looking for. You find it in silence rather than words. It covered a wide range there, in particular, emphasizing the difference between rhetoric and dialectic. Rhetoric to deal with the phenomenal world and dialectic dealing with the metaphysical world. These are two different types of language emanating from two different aspects of the mind and taking us in two different directions. And so dialectic will tell you that if speech is the beginning, then the source is beyond speech. That's dialectic. And so dialectic will take you to the same, the silence. So that's what I should have said in the first place. <laughs> so if there's any questions that you'd like to ask, or we can have the row now. 
I just wanted to ask your opinion on people who live their lives in total silence, like enclosed orders. Where would they fit into delivering meaning or whatever to, to the wider world? I mean, Right. Well, thank you for that. How it appears is that unless you have some insight into the things we were talking about this evening, uh, their lives don't mean anything. You know, why would they be silent? So the fact that you have small groups of dedicated people choosing to live that way can only make sense on the basis of our considerations this evening. That silence is where you find yourself. And it is valuable. From a rhetorical point of view, from the world point of view, it's a waste of time. What are they doing? Wouldn't they be better off getting out and doing something useful? But if you don't have the perspective that we were looking at this evening, it doesn't make any sense. More than 90% of communication in the world, of work in the world of advertising in, in the general world in which we live from the time one gets up in the morning yes. when they go to bed at night a very substantial percentage would be based on rhetorical speech absolutely absolutely uh, fine but you, I don't know if you picked up from the slide or not the, as far as it can take us is to write opinion and I don't know if you picked up the point or not because it's dealing with a world and the world is ever changing you cannot go to certainty with rhetoric. Yes, but it would be unusual, would it not, for somebody to live their normal day communicating from a dialectic? Uh, certainly it would, yeah. As long as you make it into the odd philosophy class and have a, <laughs> have a few minutes. But the important thing is to understand the difference between the two. You can't get there using rhetoric. I'm not sure the point was made clearly enough. Fine teacher I know often says, don't judge someone by what they say but what they do. Where do you think that fits into tonight's? Yes. Well, what we do is what we really mean. Not what we say. And so you would beware. Certainly all those love stories which cause so much grief you can solve them in the blink of an eye by looking at the behavior rather than listening to the words. The rhetoric is always very compelling, <laughs> but the actions are undeniable. You can't conceal your actions, but you can be very good on the old rhetoric. So when you're faced with the dilemma, does he love me or not? Or does she love me or not? Simply, if you look at, at what somebody does, uh, there's no doubt. I remember saying that in a philosophy class once, and a plaintive voice came from the back of the class which said, Is it always true? <laughs> uh, there you are. So there it is. Just one of the things earlier on, when Muhammad Ali was on. Oh, yes. And I think you were doing a summary of it then, and you said, you know, 
through his speech, he helped eliminate some of his fear. Yes, indeed, yes, yeah. And I suppose a lot of us would be culprits of that. We don't have the speech to dampen the fear. That was obviously a lot of words that he used. Would he have had this, not the intelligence, but would he have had the tendency, do you think, to be silent as well? to enable himself to counter fears and that, that he <laughs> yes. would have had, you know, I mean, he did a lot of chattering. He did indeed, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, you don't know really. What I'm really happy to say on the subject is that if you can get to any certainty, there's no fear. There's no fear. And it is dialectic that will take you to certainty. Like our little experiment tonight, is there life beyond thinking or life beyond speaking? And if you find that there is, you find that it is unchanging and the same, uh, there's great peace and bliss in discovering that. So that's where you find uh, the peace. And all the great scriptures and all the great teachers are all the time pointing us in that direction. You find it now, beyond thinking, beyond speech. You find yourself. That was going on 10th century BC, and it's still going on. We're still arguing the point. And so the little exercise we did at the end was an attempt to show how you can go beyond speech. If speech is the beginning, then if you go beyond speech, you're close to the source. And that's always an interesting place to be. And what do you find there? If you find peace and bliss, hallelujah. That's probably what the nuns in the uh, silent order were about. (coughs) The idea was that they were silent, devoting themselves to finding God and their interpretation of God. A lot of the old scriptures and philosophers, they went off into the desert for weeks on silence. Yes, indeed. As well, didn't they? Indeed. It's probably the same sort of thing. Same sort of thing, yes, yeah. Funny enough, we don't really trust it in our society. We think silence can't really produce anything. Oh, there you are. Yeah, going to sleep is an interesting parallel to what we're talking about here. The difference is that in sleep, it's oblivion. You don't know much about it until you wake up and you know you've had a good night's sleep. But the silence that we were after this evening and in our little exercise is that silence where you're not asleep you're aware and you can appreciate what's there. That's just the difference. I'm sorry, I thought the text was to be aware but not thinking exactly you were actually unaware. Well... There was no noise in your head. That was the basic Yes, idea. yeah. But not oblivion. But it wasn't oblivion, but it was quite close to oblivion because you wanted to hear the distant noise, the lightest noise, down the traffic. In other words, you, you go to a state of almost numbness in some sense. <laughs> And uh, was that your experience? Did, did you manage to get beyond the thinking and the sounds? I tried to get beyond thinking, but I couldn't get beyond all the sounds. That's, the point is, it was an exercise, right? Y- yes. To me, at the end of the day, if you can turn off the brain tap, that's the same thing that you're trying to do. And I just thought you'd get in sleep. In sleep, yes. Well, blessed sleep, what would we do without it, certainly. But in the quest to discover what it's all about, you're after some kind of meaning. And what we're attempting to do this evening was to see that when you go beyond thinking, go beyond speaking in our heads, that's the thinking is not the end of the line. There is a life beyond thinking. 
And it's often the case, I don't know if you manage it tonight or not, that when you go beyond that, you find there a certain peace and bliss. And that is the discovery as to where this peace and bliss lies or lives. In the normal course of our lives, we look for it everywhere else. So, there it is. Thank you. There is a question here. Speech in the mind. Can you distinguish between that and thoughts, please? Well, thoughts are a form of speech. We don't normally think of them that way, but that's what it is. If you wanted to articulate them, they would come out of speech. There's a curious thing. If you go back to that diagram we had with the lower mind and the higher mind, each of us has this Mihal and Murahirtik in our heads who never shuts up talking, chattering away all the time. And that is a function of the lower, lower mind in us. The higher mind works in stillness or silence. If you want to access the higher mind with its very desirable qualities of reason and discrimination and inspiration or creation, the curious thing is you have to let go your brilliance, let go the thinking, and fall still. That's how you access it. The kind of example of that is that sometimes when you wake up in the morning with the solution, you know, you don't know where it's come from, but there it is. It's that kind of thing, that when this busy thinking mind shuts up on those rare occasions when it shuts up, or when you transcend it, using one of the philosophical exercises, particularly meditation, you create the conditions where you have access to those higher characteristics of the mind. In our Western world, we glorify the lower mind. We think that thinking is it. Thinking is the way. It's the voice of Greece in us, the external world, politics and science, explanations, understanding, thinking. The other mind, the higher mind, which is concerned with the internal world, it's the voice of the East in us, mysticism and religion. There's not much credit given to that in our Western society. Stillness and silence is not a big deal in the West. Maybe it's it's coming along, but really we don't have much time for that. We're go and do, be busy, think. <laughs> so it is so important to understand those two minds in us and the different ways they work. The end result of what we're just talking about here is now is that you cannot think your way to creativity. You cannot think your way to discrimination. All of these things arise in us as a result of the activity of that higher mind in us, which is nourished or accessed through stillness and silence. Without that stillness and silence, without that access, then the lower mind rules okay. And whatever you happen to think or know or heard or learned, that's what rules. What comes out is pretty well what's gone in. Higher mind has access to all knowledge. And that's why you can have, be inspired, be creative. So it's a very good question to look at these thoughts that run in the mind. Those of you in philosophy classes will know they're categorized into circling thoughts which are the thoughts which chase themselves, chase their own tails round and round in your head, same thoughts running round and round in your head. 
they're so persistent that we often think that they're natural. They're unnatural. You spot them, stop them. <laughs> Don't have anything to do with them. Imaginings. Same thing. Imaginings. All sorts of hobgoblins can be imagined. Inner conversations in your head. Talking to yourself in your head. What's that all about? When you see it, stop it. How do you stop it? Fall still. How do you fall still? You need to be present. Attention with the senses. Any of the senses. So real thinking is silent. What do you think of that? Good, thank you. I wonder, would you speak a little bit more about music and the, the thought pattern there? I gathered from the speech that Aristotle was saying that the music reflects the turmoil. Yes. So is it the turmoil that comes first or is it the music? It's not just Aristotle. Three of them are saying, three giants of antiquity. All three are saying the same thing. They're all saying that the music, which is a form of speech, musical speech, is highly influential in terms of the behavior of the society. And if the music changes, Aristotle would prohibit it. No change. Socrates was saying, if you want to know what's going on in society and individuals, look at the music. And, of course, we've seen, certainly in my lifetime, I've seen huge changes, certainly in popular music, huge changes. I've also seen huge changes in behavior in society. So they could well have a case. It wasn't always the case that Aristotle and Plato and Socrates agree with each other. Not always the case. They took different lines on many things. But on this particular issue, they are at one. Music is hugely influential in society. That form of musical speech. How would you recognize speech that's not rhetoric? I mean, say, for instance, any time someone from Europe listens to, let's say, a right-wing politician in the States, this is our view of it, we are, by and large, repelled, sort of, I mean, just look away from the TV, get out of the room. That's just our initial instinct, I'd say, universally, and well, certainly in our house, of people that I know, I would imagine that they listen to, as they would see it, socialists in Europe, and they're repelled. Their idea of rhetoric is the opposite to ours, and our idea of dialectic is the polar opposite to theirs. So is it a case that all speech then is, in one form or another, rhetoric? Most speech is rhetoric, and if you remember from the talk, it can be good or bad. As far as it can take us, is right opinion. It is true that people in the grip of fixed ideas, there may be no prospect of them hearing anything you have to say and certainly no prospect of them being changed by anything you have to say. So that's, that's the situation. And that's rhetoric and it's the way of the world and it's the way the world is managed and it's necessary to manage the world. Sometimes it does it well, sometimes it does it ill. But if you're after the truth, if you're after reality rather than appearance, then dialectic is the means. But it's a very curious, a very curious means. The greatest exponent of dialectic was Socrates. And you can hear with Socrates who asked questions which were always dialectical. And they have this characteristic uh, that there's only ever one answer to a dialectical question. It's either yes or no. That's the mark of them. Yes or no. 
Whereas through rhetoric, you'll have as many answers as there are opinions. So dialectical questions, they have this characteristic of providing you with one answer. That's where you're getting your certainty from. But as the questions escalate, they take you to a point where everything you know is shattered. It demolishes all your ideas about what you are and how the system is and what's right and what's wrong. It takes you from knowing to not knowing. So it takes you from knowing, which is speech of one form or another, to beyond speech, to not knowing. Or if you like, it takes you from limited to unlimited. And uh, sometimes that's a, a scary prospect for us. But it is the means that Socrates was a judge to be the wisest of men, because in his hunt to disprove the, the god that he was the wisest of men, he met everybody in society and asked them about wisdom. And he came to this conclusion that he was wiser than them because they thought they knew and didn't. And he didn't know, and he knew he didn't know. <laughs> and that made a difference. So he was the wisest of men. So not knowing is that state, a bit uncomfortable for us, it's that state beyond thinking, beyond knowing, which has the quality of being limitless. And limitless is much closer to the universal power than anything we can think or feel. So, there's the rhetoric. And for many people, Joe Duffy's going to fix the world. But for those in search of truth, certainty, reality, and the peace and bliss that comes with that, it is the dialectical approach, which may take you to not knowing, which may be the best place to be. <laughs> Are you being good company with Socrates? Are you really disappointed with that? Well, in practical terms, say in real life situations, what power has dialectic speech against the power of rhetoric? Yeah, I know it may have to you as, an, as a, just as an individual, it may well bring you to peace, but against the, yeah. the, the great orators who, uh, who just rely on rhetoric, it seems powerless. Yeah. Its realm is not the material world. Its realm is the spiritual world. That's what it's interested in. That's where it takes you. There was an interesting thing about Socrates is that he would not ever do what we've just done tonight. He would never stand up in front of a group and give a talk. He would only speak if there was someone there to answer his questions. And if they stopped answering, he stopped speaking. So that's how he used dialectic. And when he asked people questions, what happened was, and the reason he was killed was, because invariably he showed them that what they thought they knew was false, was not true. And he seems to have been genuinely looking everywhere for the truth. That's what he said himself, anyway. He only entered into these arguments out of a desire to discover the truth. One other thing that you might like to consider is this, is that when you're looking at society, enlightenment is not really a mass movement. It's not going to happen as a mass movement. Individual souls make the, the breakthrough, the discovery. What they find is the same, but the journey is 
for individuals rather than for the masses. So political parties and all of that that goes with that are dealing with the world and let's hope they do the best possible job that they can do. But they're, they're not dealing with the realm which is the business of dialectic, which is the unchanging spiritual world, non-material world, metaphysical world. Different ballgame. I don't know how you formulate it exactly, but we all know that the little pause of the exercise is very helpful and very useful. And we also know, if we've done meditation, that that's very helpful and very useful. But would I be correct in saying that ideally that silence is a parallel the dialectic is a parallel to the rhetoric, that while the rhetoric is going on, the activities are going on, ideally we would be all the time maintaining that silence. So it's not either or, but that within our practical day-to-day lives we can operate on the level of doing things, but underlying it we're operating from complete stillness. Ideally. You're quite right. It's not either or. You need both. You can't cope with this world without rhetoric. But it's not ultimate. And this is how it appears to me. You could live in a rhetorical world and know nothing about the higher world. But if you know about the higher world, you know about them both. So it's not one or the other, it's one or two. One or both. Yes, I'm saying it's not intermittent. You can have both. You can actually work from both at the same time. Well, certainly, yes, certainly, yes. But if you don't know about the higher world, the world of stillness or the world of dialectic, let's call it, then you will think the lower world is the real world and you will live there happily. But just to clarify, rather than just have little exercise or little pause, which come in now and again, which are very useful, but would our ideal not be that we can operate from that... Stillness. Rhetoric. Yeah. Well, we, we can operate along the level of rhetoric, but that stillness can be always there, not just now and again. Yes, it can. But yes, then we'll be aiming to get it always there. Is yes, it can. You can be still and in action, certainly. And how do we do that? <laughs> you just said it with practice. <laughs> I don't know if you'd agree with me or not. The first thing is to know that there is a world beyond the world of the senses. You'd have to discover that looks like you have to be told that. You have to be instructed in that somehow or another. But when you know about it, then you can have both worlds. But it is possible to go through life and never discover anything about that higher world. Just go through life with the senses. In here, out there. It's possible to do that. And all of the teachers and all of the great philosophies and religions are all saying, hold on a minute, have a look. It's interesting, in Plato, he asks that the whole soul would turn around. Just as the eye cannot see without the body turning, so in philosophy you cannot get to the truth unless the whole soul turns around. So in other words, that you acknowledge that there is a higher world, and in that higher world then you can conduct your affairs, with knowledge of the higher world, you can conduct your affairs and deal with the world efficiently, but not concerned that it is the ultimate world. And I would suggest to you that if you have that knowledge, uh, that the prize is that you can conduct your affairs in peace and bliss. Nama or no nama. (laughs) You can remain steady. 
Now we're going through really turbulent times at the moment and you can go up and down with the turbulence or you can be steady and deal with it. You can have birth and death. You can be steady. And it is reason that will take you to the value of that upper world. Rhetoric won't do it. You'll either see the pots or the clay. <laughs> if you see the clay, you'll see the clay and the pots. If you just see the pots, that's all there is, pots. Isn't it a fascinating, far-reaching subject? You just said there, Michael, that in some way we need to be instructed about this. But would you not agree that sometimes some people, maybe all of us in some way, can go through great suffering? And after going through great suffering, actually innately come to a, an understanding about meaning. Like what springs to mind is Eckhart Tolle, who basically went through great suffering and then after that found that he understood a great deal. Yes. It seems to me that quite a lot of people, without being instructed like we are here, can actually go through life-changing suffering and come out the other side knowing that the kingdom of God is within. Yes. If that makes sense. Yeah. So maybe it's innate. That's what I'm wondering. Yes. Well, certainly wisdom is innate. There's no doubt about it. And it's not that you're told something new. It's something is revealed in us. That's for sure. It's just calling on my own experience there. I have to tell you that I never, ever, ever would have realized that there was life beyond thinking unless I was told and unless there was an opportunity to experience that. And I'm so convinced that I never would have discovered it myself. <laughs> so there's a bias in there. And perhaps great suffering would do it as well. But I remember when I heard that, I nearly fell off the chair. That thinking wasn't the end, wasn't the ultimate. And that what lay beyond was worth finding because it offered peace and bliss. That was an extraordinary discovery for me. I don't know how it is with others, but that was my experience. It's not the same sense as a very poet that you might enjoy. Yes. It's not the same thing. Yeah, poetry and music, we have a different way of relating to them. Certainly. And that's probably why we resort to them, because they take us beyond thinking and beyond that speech. Wonderful. Wonderful. And then there's a great argument about that, because some music, I mean, the Italian composers will have us in floods of tears. What's that uh, about, you know? And that's probably why those people who know about this say that the music of Mozart is the finest music we have, because it leaves you still. Your heart is not breaking. <laughs> Just as that gentleman was talking about poetry and music, mm. but equally something like sport could bring you there as well, because if you're in the middle of sailing or skiing or whatever, you are so in the moment that you are in touch with that extra thing. So sure. I think there's a whole lot of ways in which that manifests. Sure. What did you think of the issue of certainty that that point is raised up there, that Rhetoric can only take you to right opinion. Because it's dealing with an ever-changing world, it can never give you certainty. And if you want certainty, you've got to go to the metaphysical world, to that world which does not change. 
Did that offer any... Well, we like certainty, don't we? We'd like to be sure. If you were certain, would you be free of doubt and worry and all of those things? So no matter how hard we try, if we're to follow the argument this evening, rhetoric and the phenomenal world always promising us endless happiness, but can't ever deliver it. And the reason it can't deliver it, this is a dialectical point, it can't deliver it because you're dealing with something which is continually changing. That's reason. So you've got to find that which does not change. And what takes you to what doesn't change is reason. I don't quite follow why you talk about continually changing. Surely, if one is talking about human behavior, say in a rhetorical sense, I can understand that because that's continually changing. We're in the world of opinion. But if you were talking about, say, the laws of nature, surely you could be certain about those. Yeah. And you, you won't be able to see them. You'd use reason to understand the laws. So it's very yes, much, the uncertainty relates to human behaviour, is it then? It's to, to trying to make sense of this world the, in worldly terms. Let's just try this for example. This is an example now of rhetoric and dialectic. Just let's try it together like that. Has this world become? Let's start there. Just become. Has it appeared? Yes, it has. Okay? Can anything become without some cause? Okay, are you happy with that? There must be a cause, right? And so, if there is a cause of this world, it must be unchanging. Let, let me just back up for a moment. This world has become because you can touch it and you can see it. Would you be happy with that? You can touch it and see it. Okay? It can't become without a cause. The cause must be untouchable and unseen. Why? That's a, a dialectical question now. Because if you could touch it and see it, it would have become. Okay. So therefore... The cause of this world, we're, getting, we're using dialectic now, reason there, the cause of this world must be untouchable and unseeable. Otherwise it would have become, right? So it doesn't become. Okay, and if it doesn't become, it doesn't change. Is that fair enough? And if it doesn't change, if it doesn't change, it's not subject to decay. Okay, and if it's not subject to decay, it must be eternal. That's a kind of a dialectical progression, using reason. You can't see any of those things, but reason can demonstrate them, if you like. I don't know if you went with me there down that line, but anyway, where you would get to would be that the cause of this world is unchanging, eternal, and unseen. And there must be a cause if something has become. So, if you like, that's a kind of a proof. I can see you're all delighted with that proof. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah. Is it possible, or would it improve the world, if this dialectic aspect could be brought into a wider 
forum. Yes, exactly. yeah. Rather than just when one is meditating or falling still or mm. pausing okay. between actions. And I was particularly thinking of these union negotiations that were going on over the weekend. It's one example where it seems to be all, well, rhetorical, rhetoric. Yes. Uh, at least the reports. And secondly, the issue today, you know, the new revelations by Brian Lenehan about the NAMA situation and how much more it's going to cost to bail out banks. That's the second situation. And the third situation is in the world of commerce and business and so on, how would one incorporate the dialectic into that? Okay. Terrific question. Now, I'm not sure how much this is a personal opinion or not, but it's borne out to some degree by the sages. Enlightenment is not a mass movement. Enlightenment is where individual souls rise up and discover the truth. If you're waiting for society to change, to be enlightened, there's no evidence that society is going anywhere except where it has always gone in the past, round in circles, sometimes going up, sometimes going down. But irrespective of the circumstances, anywhere along the way, Individual souls have always transcended their circumstances and found what they were looking for. So the direction is that we, we look to ourselves rather than to Brian Cowan or the political system or whatever. Uh, his speech. His yes, speech. yeah, they brought about change, yes, yes, uh, in, indeed, yes. But in, in relation to enlightenment, in other words, to understanding how this whole thing works, that seems to be an individual journey. When you get there, you get to the same, but the journey is an individual journey. And it's available at all times and in even the most difficult circumstances. Apart from Eckhart, Tull, Socrates, all these people appeared in very difficult times, most difficult times. And yet they made this breakthrough. So that's the best way I can deal with the situation. Waiting for society to change so that we'll all be lifted up by it, not sure that's going to do it. My question, even the first one about the imposed orders, was more how can society benefit from even individuals or a small group following reason, people in pursuit of wisdom or operating out of the dialectic and the rhetorical way of communicating? Well, I would think that the world would be worse off without them. And we need to be careful. We're on the brink of abandoning religion. We would be impoverished, whatever the rationale is, to remove those spiritual elements from our lives. And there's a great movement. You now have a militant atheism which says, get rid of religion. It is the cause of all the trouble and all the problems in the world. There was always atheists who would say, look, I'm happy enough, and you believe what you want to believe, I believe it. But this is slightly different. This is 
going to the media, going to books and television programs and into schools and saying, we've got to get rid of religion. I'm going to just end this on a happy note about an atheist anyway. There was this atheist <laughs> walking through the woods, right? And he was looking around and he was saying, isn't this fantastic? Look at all this wonderful thing that nature has brought about. And suddenly there was a very loud footfall behind him. And he looked over his shoulder and there was a very large bear. And he said, I better get out of here. So he started to run. And as he ran, the bear ran after him. And he ran as hard as he could and the bear caught him, knocked him on the ground, raised a paw, was about to take his head off when the atheist said, God, help me. <laughs> and a voice from the heavens said, what's this God help me business? All your life you've denied me. Now you're asking me to help you. And he said, I know, I know, I know. He said, but do something with the bear. Turn the bear into a Catholic. Do something. <laughs> and like in a flash, the bear took his paw down, just like that, and brought the other paw up and brought them together and said, for what we are about to receive, <laughs> we are truly grateful. <laughs> well, there you are. Anyway, it's good to end on a happy note. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming tonight. I just hope that it acts as some kind of stimulus to encourage you in your pursuit of meaning. And if it's okay with you, we'll just end by just being silent for a few moments. Just feet on the ground, attention with the hearing. And just see if you can allow the sounds and the thoughts to come to pass and just stay with the hearing. The hearing doesn't change. The thoughts are ever-changing, and the sounds. So stay with the hearing, leave everything else. And the hearing can take you into the furthest and gentlest sounds and into the silence beyond. And see if you can surrender your brilliance and just be still. And just enjoy the presence of yourself. That is the unchanging presence of yourself. Oh, very good. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and enjoy the break. We'll see you in the new term. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.